the Oneiders. That's the wonders. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis, and at Ovnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Time for the podcast. So, here we are, again, back on The Contrarians, where we're right and you are wrong. My name is Alex. I am joined, as always, by my buddy Julio. Julio, how are you doing this evening? Uh, I'm doing all right. I mean, I feel a little brain dead. Uh, it, it will happen when you watch a movie that repeats the same song every five minutes. But that's okay. I'm here. I'm a trooper. I'm a fighter. Uh, that's so. no lie. Um, by the breakdown... In its incarnation, the song plays 11 times throughout that movie, and it's an hour and 40 minutes, so that, that breaks down to about every five minutes. Do the math. Yeah. Which you can do while you're watching the movie, because there's not much <laughs> going on. So we are here for episode number 34. Wow, we're getting pretty bad at this. I think it's 34. Okay. It's the new. It's not like our joke. Like We really are losing. <laughs> we can't remember which one it is. I think our goal for 35 is to like write it down ahead of time. Exactly. So uh, that thing you do. And fittingly enough, this is our two-year anniversary of the Contrarians podcast, excuse me, and also the 20-year anniversary of that thing you do. Sometimes we just get it right, and we're not even trying. I know. It just The stars align. Much um, like the kids in this band in the movie. Yeah, but the literal stars did not align, because this is a variable who's that of Hollywood. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, I guess it's fitting. It's a movie about a, a, you know, a one-hit wonder band. And, and for of, pretty much the parties involved, this was a one-hit wonder. Yep. Uh, well, but that not for you know the critics because it was a ninety-three percent. Right. And then and then they turned on Hanks on yeah. his next movie. So in, in I mean it still applies. Yeah. Um, we'll start with uh, Barbara Schulgasser from the San Francisco Examiner, who says the good old days look good indeed in this movie. Mike Clark from USA Today says. Hanks has a good thing going. Jeff Weiss from Desert News Salt Lake City says, The film definitely does its own thing and often does it well. 
I think you can see where they're going. So we're, let's switch gears uh, to Steve Rhodes from Internet Reviews, who says, you will likely leave the theater feeling happy for no particular reason. Uh, Jim Judy from Screenit says, nearly everything has incredible, subtle death. And this just made the movie that much more enjoyable, I guess. Ryan Cracknell from Calgary Movies says, an undeniably delightful film. It makes you smile and want to dance, and, for better or worse, its titular theme song won't leave your head for days. That's true. It's for worse, Ryan. <laughs> Finally, Scott Nash from Three Movie Buffs says, a movie as catchy and likable as the title song. I guess well, Scott, Scott doesn't listen to much music, I think. Yeah. So, you know, most of the time when we do these uh, films and uh, recaps, synopsi, what have you, you know, we'll break it down throughout, you know, I'll introduce the character and the actor. For this, since it is like an ensemble, I'm just going to kind of run down here quickly. You're um, going to introduce us to the band. Exactly. So the movie written and directed, obviously, by Tom Hanks, who plays Mr. White in this. No first name. He couldn't stay away from uh, from the screen. From the limelight, no. But, you know, the band, the Wonders, the Oneaters, what have you, it's comprised of, initially, uh, Ethan Embry, who plays TB Player, the bass player. Making a sad return to the Contarians podcast after wowing us uh, on Empire Records. Exactly. Here, his character doesn't even have a name. No. Uh, we have Steve Zahn, who plays Lenny Heiss, who Steve Zahn should have been the star of this film. Yes. Arguably the only survivor of this movie. Other yes. than, than Hanks. But Hanks, he had he had a career behind him, so he could withstand uh, surviving that thing you do. Whereas like, everybody else, well. Jonathan Sheshish? We couldn't figure out how to pronounce his name. And now we'll never Shashay. know. Who played who played Jimmy Mattingly? And yes, we will never know because what the fuck has this guy done since then? And then he of must course aid this movie. Rounding out the quartet, we have the incomparable Giovanni Ribisi, who's Chad, who's written off in five minutes of the movie. It's almost like that story about how uh, uh you know, in Back to the Future, the first one, it wasn't Michael J. Fox at first. They actually started shooting with uh what's his name from God, the guy in Pulp Fiction, the drug dealer that sells Travolta. Eric the... Stoltz? Yes. Eric Stoltz. There's actually photos from, from... I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. He, they actually shot uh, you know, a chunk of the movie, and then they're like, nope, it's not working. <laughs> Eric Stoltz, you're leaving. We're bringing in the real Marty, Marty McFly. McFly, and we're reshooting. But you can look it up. Ryan saw uh, Eric Stoltz, Back to the Future, and you can see a picture of uh, when they're in the park. It's parking. like uh, when they did the test shots of Nicolas Cage as Superman. <laughs> they're like we've made a huge mistake <laughs> so i would understand if eric stoltz hates back to the future and maybe there's some sort of situation similar here where at first they're like ribisi you're the drummer for the whole movie and then they're like fuck this write him out and then rita wilson's like i got my new guy here <laughs> his name is tom everett scott and he's gonna play guy patterson and he is for better or for worse the star of the film he is, for better or for worse, also a young Tom Hanks. Yeah. It, it, it's almost like they cloned Tom Hanks, but they just took him out of the test tube like a little too early. <laughs> and so so it's like he, he is Tom Hanks. He even sounds like Tom Hanks, but but he is not Tom Hanks. Which gives you this weird voyeuristic, like, just overall vibe of the film. There is this layer of – because Tom Hanks is the writer, the director, and he is 
basically the guy he's dictated. He's not the star, in, but he is the star. Right, right. He's the star on both ends. It's like he's living vicariously through Tom Everett Scott because he gets to be the hero of the movie, the protagonist. But he also casts himself, his real self, as the manipulator, the the, the allegedly the smartest person in the movie, the guy yeah. that's pulling the strings and all that stuff. It, so he gets to be in the movie twice. Yeah. As as his idealistic self and also he gives himself the the adult role the complex role it's like a much more intelligent and of course whitewashed version of like the nutty professor where eddie murphy plays every character tom hanks figured out how to like go about that but a much cheaper route um so and also the the damsel in distress the the flame the muse of the film Liv tyler one of the one of the two female characters in the movie making her return to the Contrarians podcast. Yes, and reuniting with, with her co-star with from Mark, Empire Records. Uh, plays Faye Dolan. And the other female character in the movie, born to play this role, was Charlize Theron as Tina Powers, who's just... Once again, very quickly written, written out of uh, of the movie, too. It's, of course, and written out in a very misogynistic context. Yes, but. yeah. Uh, okay, so we've established the players. Well, so well, let's so- get to the game. Before we should mention also the era, because I think that that that's Erie, Pennsylvania, nineteen sixty four. Yes, huge problem in this movie <laughs> because this is the sixties. That's not the sixties. This is like the sixties from you know when you're talking to like old people and old people are like back in the good. Let's make America great again. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, this is the America that never was unless you're watching movies <laughs> like like Tom Hanks is that thing you do. Uh, it's this the middle of the sixties, but I don't know. They shot it, and the areas where black people were not there. <laughs> no, Erie, Pennsylvania is the whitest, the, the whitest city ever uh, in the sixties. There's like two characters of color in the film, and one of them is uh, like a doorman, and the other one is a, a, a legendary jazz musician. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that we only get led to because the doorman knows where the hot jazz club is. Yes. Yeah. They, this movie treats uh, black people as this sort of underground culture. <laughs> <laughs> you only get to, if you know the password, if you're a white guy. Which, granted, it was 20 years before I was born, but at the same time, it's like, I thought we were a bit more evolved as a culture by that well, point. Well, not just that. There was a lot more conflict in the 60s. Uh, I was going to say Tom Hanks, Tom Everett Scott in this movie. He lives in this sort of white paradise where nobody's even aware of racial conflicts or anything he's just he's it's the 60s but not the real 60s at all Mm -hmm. there's uh but but they try to because they mentioned the beatles a couple times so it is happening in some sort of it's supposed to be happening in the real world yeah but it's separated but yeah guy this fantasy guy lives in it all begins at patterson appliances uh family-run business it's his whole family. Uh, his dad runs the place. His mom's a secretary. His sister works there, and he works there as well. He's a salesman on the floor. His sister. Don't be fooled to thinking that she's an actual character. No. She she doesn't get a single line, I think. Uh, he is a drummer. The movie begins with him, after closing hours, goes down to the basement, down to the basement, and um, puts on his Del Paxton record and kind of plays along with it. He goes to get... Coffee, you know, uh, wherever it is, the main strip of this town is very much like Pleasantville. Yes. It's just everything's right next to where it is. But there's a band without. You said an... that Pleasantville was black and white, and this is just white. <laughs> Touche. Um, there's a band without a name that's in this coffee shop, 
uh, led by Jonathan Shishishish. Um but basically Jimmy, Jimmy. The, the band Jimmy is here and they're trying to figure out what the fuck their name's going to be and guys there and he I guess his, his reputation precedes him he's known as a drummer around town I think that there's I don't know because I, I thought that they implied that he had played with uh, Steve Zahn in a okay. previous band but then later when he's talking about uh, to Faye or to somebody he's like I've only been in one band before and we only played once and we broke up I mean I guess he could be talking about the same band but why wouldn't he say I've been in a band before with Steve Zahn. Yeah, exactly. I would brag about being in a band with Steve Zahn. Me too. Even if we broke up after one gig, yeah. still that's a story. That's a better story than I was in a band and we broke up. So basically they kind of roast him and give him some shit. And then they're just saying, oh, yeah, we're playing this talent show tonight. And then you know he goes back to work and the band's fucking around on the street. And Giovanni Ribisi is showing, you know, he's trying to teach Ethan Embry how to hurdle parking meters. And then he slips and falls, which... Probably the best comedic delivery of the film. And again, Ethan Embry comes to form and he says, guys, Chad fell down and Chad Giovanni Ribisi is broken his up. arm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, it's good that you mentioned Ribisi or not Ribisi, uh, Ethan Embry, because I was sickened by how his character, because we know this actor, we've seen him do so much better. We've seen him him be like full of life over 20 it, episodes ago you know that was one of the first episodes we did where we really agreed that someone brought life to a film right whatever was going on if even Embry was he on went screen for it. exactly but in this movie he's just neutered yeah he he barely speaks in every time the camera cuts to him he's just it's almost like he's afraid of the camera he's i wouldn't have been surprised and, at all to read that like hanks was slapping him in between takes probably yeah. he looks he really looks you like calm down like he's this being, is my movie god damn it none of that improvisational bullshit none of that talk about drugs this is this is paradise america i don't want you going crazy about weed uh yeah it's, it's you're sad. used to anthony lapaglia this is the real world bitch <laughs> fuck lapaglia <laughs> so basically they immediately karma comes into play because they need a drummer and in this town of five people there's no one else around so they have to go to uh, they had to go to the Patterson's appliances and they say, Hey guy, you know, we need you. And to guys credit, like a true G, like a true salesman, he says only if you buy this clock radio. Yeah. Cause his dad is giving him the, the side eye yeah. like, while your friends here bothering you, which is really, he's not bad at his job. I mean, he's distracted cause he's young. How old is he? How old are you supposed to be? They're like college age, right? Like, so early twenties. They're the teenage heartthrobs. So actually, eighteen, like, nineteen. Really, wow, that's even sadder then. <laughs> but because uh, Jimmy's pushing about thirty-seven. <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy, I understand now why he doesn't smile because when he smiles, you can see the age there. Uh, but and we'll get to it. You want to talk about going for it? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but but yeah, guy, he's he looks like he's doing fine. And and he doesn't Patterson's, need them, right? He doesn't need them, but he. The movie basically is telling you is telling you the story of Guy following his dreams, his dreams that are really not common sense. You know, this is the sixties, this is America, and he has a good thing going at the appliance store. Mm. He has talent. He really should be. He's out of school. He's banging Charlie's Theron. Exactly. Why? Why is he looking for more? But no, instead <laughs> he this sets him off on a path of you know it has its highs, but. Eventually, I think by the time we get to the movie, you'll agree that the lows uh, are, they overpower the highs. Yeah. 
and yet the movie seems to celebrate this. Yeah. We really need more people in the workforce and less like artists trying to find themselves and, and trying to, to uh, make it big. You really shouldn't be encouraging the youth of America to go off and pursue their dreams when their Unless parents need them. Unless you want minimum wage to be $15 an hour, you, you know. Yeah, yeah. So he reluctantly agrees to join. He rehearses with them all day long in Jimmy's garage, or uh, Steve Zahn's garage, I believe. And he comes up with the name. He says something about, you know, we're the wonders. And, and he says, uh, wonderful. Yes. And then Liv Tyler. And Faye comes into play and says, that's right, Guy Patterson, we're the wonders. And then Jimmy has to make things overly complicated and says, okay, yeah, but we'll be, you know, the O-N-E, the Wonders. And Steve Zahn, the the voice of reason throughout this entire film, says, yeah, but it looks like O-Neaters. But Jimmy just refuses to hear any of it. Yeah, it, it's one of those uh, dangerous gambits where uh, he, Steve Zahn, he's cast as the clown but also the voice of reason. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why his character ends up not working because you never know when you're supposed to take him seriously and when you're supposed to to just laugh at him. I really, I would have liked it if Hanks, who actually, he stereotypes the characters pretty clearly and yet with Zahn, he just can't decide at, at what point he's like the wise man, at what point he's, he's the fool. Steve Zahn is Jeff Goldblum from Independence Day. You don't believe him until it's too late. Yes, and then the aliens are blowing up the White House. Exactly, and then Jimmy's acting. <laughs> yes. So they do the talent show. Um, Giovanni Ribisi shows up to see it, Armin Sling, and Guy immediately, you know, to the thought of Jimmy immediately, he blows it because he starts playing the, the tune at a much accelerated pace because Jimmy wrote that thing you do as a ballad. Right. And, you know, Guy sees it for what it is, and it's a, it's a good tune. So he turns up the pace, and it works out for the best for all of them, except for poor Giovanni Ravisi just sitting there, just, you know. Yeah, and for the audience watching the movie at home because, yeah, that first time you hear it, you're like, oh, okay, that's cool. Let's see what else they got. Well, here's news for you. <laughs> They don't got much they, more. They don't have much else. <laughs> so they become a local hit around town doing uh, the bar, the local Italian places. The the kids want to come out and dance to it. Um, during all of this, Liv Tyler is really kind of getting ahead of herself. Faye, the character, is getting a, a bit too big for her, you know, her knickers as it is. Right. She is not really in the band. No. And, I mean, I don't want to sound demeaning to her. I mean, that's the movie. The movie didn't put her in the band. The mm. movie just casts her as this... Sort of cheerleader that happens to be dating the vocalist. But she's getting a bit kind of flirtatious outside of the box, and especially given me the, or given Guy, excuse me, the, the, the eyes. Like, right. Yeah. She, she has a boyfriend. She is, she pretends to be way more serious about the relationship than Jimmy is. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, yeah, she is kind of giving, you know, giving the eyes to uh, the guy. Uh, of course, Guy is dating Charlie's Tarrant. Mm -hmm. So. He's living the life. <laughs> Man, there's no need Liv for him Tyler to leave. And Charlie Theron <laughs> fawning over you. Of course, we find out Charlie Theron, um, Tina. She's just kind of. She just wanted a man in her life, and then as soon as the next, you know, the next shiny bright toy came along, she ditched Guy. Well, it's entirely possible that Guy could have stayed with her if he had just kept a sensible job instead of playing music. She, she's thing, don't overreach people. <laughs> exactly. Just if you have a good thing going, just stay with it. So due to their popular demand, you know, people are asking for records. Uh, 
And this is where the the movie kind of comes into play. What you're saying, no one wants to hear anything but that thing you do. And so you know, America, the, exactly. So they make a record. Of course, it's a 45. One side's that thing you do. The other side, God only knows. Um, and this eventually, <laughs> you know what? It's, it's it's sad that I know this, but I'm 99 percent sure that the other side is. Fuck! What was it called? All my only dreams, or something? Is this the Jimmy complains about it during the movie a couple times that we only well, got one take of it. The only other song they play is that "Come on and dance with me tonight." That's the Steve Zahn song. That that's is. A, that's the one where he plays. That's vocals. the iconic tune. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so guy is confronted or approached rather outside of uh, the appliances store by Phil, who basically sells himself as their new manager, and Phil, you know is not a reputable source, but you can tell pretty quickly that he's a, a shark. He's a money hound. Right. He His office, he's like, let's come talk in my office. And his office is a camper. Yeah. He just he literally just drove his office outside of uh, Patterson Appliances. And Steve's on, when they, right before they sign their contracts with him, does have a very, you know, hate to give a credit, great line of, a man in a very nice camper is offering to make us rich. This movie is just so irresponsible. It's in Tom Hanks had been in the business for a while by the time he made this movie, so it's not like he was unaware of the power of movies. Mm -hmm. And the way this movie depicts the rise of this band, can you imagine if you were in a band, you're one of these like indie bands struggling, trying to decide if if you should continue this or just give up and live a sensible life? Yeah. And and then you watch this movie, you're like, oh fuck, anybody can do this. <laughs> I'm just gonna keep playing because any any second now, some dude in a camper is gonna roll up and offer. I'm gonna quit my job at the hardware store. All I need is that one song, that one song that I'll play it. I won't even play it the way it was supposed to be played. Yeah. I'll just wing it when I when I were stage. And yeah, that's. Uh, but this movie, it's basically just irresponsibly encouraging people to follow a lifestyle that really doesn't play out the way it plays out in the movies when you're in real life. Exactly. And that, that is the tale. It's like Sugar Ray. I've seen Sugar Ray live. Mark McGrath, when they played Fly, dead behind the eyes. <laughs> but, you know, Phil does promise them in a week radio play. And we get a scene where... Liv Tyler Faye is listening to her little headset radio and that thing you do comes on the radio. And, you know, it was the first time in the movie that you and I kind of marked out because when she hugs um, Ethan Embry, we were like, oh, shit, it's Mark and Corey back together at last. They're but, making us think of a better movie. Yeah, exactly. But then they run back to the appliances store and then Guy just abandons his job. He's lucky he's employed by his dad because he would have been fired by any other employer. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's funny how you see this movie because as an adult, it, you just see that and it's a tragic scene. Mm -hmm. You know, you're talking about these really young people. Their lives are peaking. Yes, they're peaking at 18. And that's why I said that's sadder. I felt that they were in their early 20s. No, this happens even younger. Yeah. <laughs> they're not even 20 when this happens. And, and they're, yeah, they're peaking super early. This will never happen again. But... The movie again celebrates it instead of really treating it with the gravity that that it deserves. So they, you know, one of Phil's things is that he, we're going to take you on the road. So they take him to Pittsburgh, also in Pennsylvania, and they're going to do a, a show with uh, Pollock. This is where he comes into play, Kevin Pollock. Uh, I don't know what the fuck he's doing in this movie. He's just like a random DJ. Yeah, it's it's like a bit part, and I don't know if it's I don't know who's doing who the favor. I don't know if <laughs> Hanks was trying to cast. Uh, a name actor just to, to 
to brighten up the scene or if Pollock needed the cash and and Hanks was like sure I have a small part here that there's no way that you can fuck this up uh but he shows up and he's he's just uh you know we talk about the Ethan Embrys of the movies and and he I think he's a candidate for the Ethan Embry role in this movie even though this movie has already Ethan Embry but like we said he's neutered so uh, Kevin Pollock shows up here and he has like some weird hair is that his real hair or is he wearing a wig and he's he does this little dance on stage and he's and he's doing like this weird like you know sing along with the crowd but we have no idea what's going on right it, it's just it's almost like this guy had a movie before he got here and and he comes in and we're supposed to know what happened in that movie but no we're just seeing him for the first time and then he's gone because yeah. he's there for like a day the, the only person that has more screen time than him is uh uh Giovanni Ribisi or, or the only person that has less, less screen time yeah. than him but Giovanni Ribisi he has like those scenes where he's on screen for two seconds but just pointing right. at something if yeah. you add up the seconds okay gotcha. both then yeah but the Pittsburgh shows a disaster their microphones don't work the drum kit falls apart you know it's it's a very fucking amateur production yes which should give you a clue that this is really this should have been the point where any sensible person would have been like, all right, we gave it a shot, but this is really, this is what the real world is like. But then you have what basically comes to light is that Phil is just a money mark and that he sees where he can penetrate mentally and he takes Guy as the weak link and he's like, all right, if there's one way I'm going to get money out of this, it's going to be through this fucker. And then he takes him to meet Mr. White, who is a representative from Playtone Records Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks makes sensors in the movie, mm-hmm. uh, and and they uh, they change hands. And yeah, you're right. He catches guy at his lowest. Mm-hmm. Once again, the movie depicts this as a big high point in the career of the Wonders, when it really is just sad because they've gone from small town shark to being in the hands of a corporation that couldn't give two shits about them. Exactly. Just pawns him off, and he gets, you know, he absorbs the contract, and Phil gets all the money from that. So Tom Hanks, at this point, putting the shit together, he's like, "Okay, you guys are gonna wear uniforms. You're gonna be nice guys. All right, you you gonna spell the wonders as the wonders, exactly. Not, you're gonna spell it weird." He tells guy, "Okay, you have to wear these sunglasses." Um, and then at this point, Ethan Embry reveals that, "Hey, I've joined the Marines, so I'm only gonna be with the band till August." And it's demonizing doing a good thing. It's making him out to be an asshole for doing his duty for his country. It will not be the last time that this movie demonizes the Marines because <laughs> then we actually get to meet some Marines later on. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's not it's not flattering. So part of this is that they're going to go on tour. So they launch a tour and they are clearly too young to handle this because they just act horribly inappropriate. Like when they begin the tour, every time they meet someone of fame, they just start freaking out and fawning over them. And you know, you can tell these people don't find that charming. Yes, and and especially now if they're underage, this is just it's such a weird double standard where the movie shows them puts them in positions where this is like rock and roll. It it presents itself as a rock and roll comedy, mm-hmm. let's say. But there's no drinking. There's no. Uh, there's some drinking later on, but not not like real. Not rock and roll drinking. Yeah. No drug use. No real violence. There's some emotional violence down the line, but no. And, and there is no way that these kids at 18, 19, even 20, there's no way that they wouldn't just be going wild. The way they're acting, the way they're being so starstruck by everything that happens around them, there's no way that they wouldn't go crazy 
after a couple of days of being that festival, and yet yeah. it never happens. Yeah. Um, but it's clear it's a different thing now. It was Jimmy's band, and now it's Mr. White's band. He's in control. He calls all the shots. It's leading to some tension within, but at the same time, they have this success that's growing at an undeniable rate. They're climbing the charts, and then before you know it, you know they're in the top ten records in the country. Yeah, uh, you. We get we get a, a montage. It feels like there's a good chunk of the movie where the second act is just like this long montage where you get like a couple scenes in between, but but they really they go through, I guess, their their playlist. But yeah. you only see like snippets of it. You never really get a full on song except for uh, the Steve Zahn song yeah. that plays almost in its entirety. Because uh, he earned that. Well, yeah. I mean, come on, it's Steve Zahn. It's a, even in a bad movie, he gets to shine a little bit. <laughs> of course, every couple of songs they play that thing you do again. It, yeah, because it plays exactly the same. <laughs> yes, uh, Tom Hanks was really trying to make this happen. So let's 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 sell those soundtracks. I think that Hanks thought that because he was making a movie that was set in the sixties, and it was okay for him to do some like bullshit montage montage transitions that that shouldn't fly in the nineties or the two thousands. Like when they're in the man, fucking, we did Valley of the Dolls last weekend or last week, excuse me, and. That seemed like something that would have happened in that movie in one of the montages, right, the where map. they're yeah they're running around the map in of the, the map. country. Yeah, yeah. I, I I was I was a little confused because the movie up till then hadn't really, you know, let's say, capitulated visually. They hadn't yeah. given up, but but here it was just like fuck it. <laughs> just, we need to we need to speed up the rise of success. So let's just do whatever. Let's let's just go for it. But it leads to mounting tensions in the band. Jimmy's getting upset because he's the artiste of it all. And it's also leading to an interesting dynamic between Guy and Faye. Uh, yeah, that, that's, I, I think it's actually a triangle. Well, I guess a square if you count Jimmy. But because Tom Hanks himself, Mr. White, also shows this sort of unhealthy interest in in that whole relationship. Yeah, At some point... He they're at one of their stops, and he decides up to Faye, and, and he makes small talk, asks how long uh, she's been with Jimmy, and then asks if uh, if if guy has a girlfriend back home, and and I'm like, why do you care, dude? You're like twenty, thirty years older than her. <laughs> that is <laughs> that is really creepy. And if you want to read more into it, it's Tom Hanks knowing that him as an actor is too old now to be. Liv Tyler's love interest, but his surrogate, yeah. the person that he's living vicariously through, uh, Tom Everett Scott, he's the right T-E-S. age. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, so we'll just we'll we'll make this happen. It can't happen with me, so it'll happen with the other character that is also me. But at the same time, the, it builds it with the the audience watching it because Faye's ill and Guy's the only one who's looking after her. But they make their way to the West Coast because uh, they're going to film a movie. They're, yeah. they're Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters. Yes, they're not the wonders in the movie. No, yeah. So they make their way out there. And this is where we do have the one black character in the movie, and he's the doorman at the, the hotel. And he he's all-knowing and wise beyond his years. Offensively wise to black people. <laughs> um, and this, you know, on their trip to the West Coast, the trappings of success kind of come into play. They, you know, want to do this movie and then Jimmy's all offended because they're not playing their music and that type of thing. And at certain points, Tom Hanks, Mr. White just has to lay it down. You know, it, fuck it. You sign the contract. I get to tell you what the fuck to do. Um, and that is something, too, where Jimmy, you know, 
for a momentary glance becomes a sympathetic character. He is a real asshole, but at the same time, you have to appreciate he has his artistic integrity. Yes, I. And the I, movie teaches you you have to sell out to get anything. That is true. That's entirely true. It's it's really sad how the movie turns Jimmy into a villain, just for sticking to his guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, I mean, and the real the movie really goes for it. It's not. This is not the end of it. I mean, by the end of the movie, the movie is asking you to hate him. Jimmy is the devil by the end of this movie. Yes, he is. He's really he's uh, transformed and almost without a real transition. Jimmy is Donald Trump by the end of this movie. <laughs> well, there is a Donald Trump in the movie before Jimmy even finishes falling off, uh, falling from grace. And that's uh, when we meet the plain tone, I guess CEO, like the big, the big. Oh yeah, the, the big wig. Yeah, yeah. Well. yeah, that guy's Trump. Okay, I can appreciate that. Yeah. So Jimmy's Pence by the end of this film. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Tensions in the band, you know, leading to their le- the moment it's going to is the the Wonders debuting on national television. But all this tensions building, they kind of go their separate ways while they're on the West Coast. They spring off. Um, Ethan Embry disappears. He runs <laughs> into a group of Marines and yep. he wants to impress them. And yeah, so he just fucking disappears. I mean, you want to talk about Jimmy being an asshole, but the Marines, the first thing they do when they he approaches them and it's like, hey, I enlisted and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, well, just give me some push-ups. And they start making him do push-ups in the hotel lobby, which yeah. is just bullshit. But the movie's like, ha, ha, isn't that funny? <laughs> the Marines are assholes. Steve Zahn's character, uh, Lenny falls in love with the the uh, secretary, the maitre d', if you will, from the Playtones records, and they're going to run off together into the desert. They're going to go to Nevada and get married. Jimmy, you know, is getting fed up with all this artistic bullshit. And Guy, he's in the he's on the West Coast, so he wants to go see some good jazz. And of course, who knows where the good jazz is? black guy the black guy so he leads them to a jazz club where we get our judd aptow moment of the film in which tom hanks <laughs> cast his wife as a very important character for an emotional poignant moment of the film and of course reading that reading the fact that he cast his wife as a woman that pretty much tries to have sex with his surrogate in the movie, I mean that is more that interesting. Is than so like, Judd Aptow, <laughs> yes, that too. Because she literally, she's trying to fuck him. She's trying to fuck Tom Everett Scott. Oh yeah, and but but of course he he is. He starts off too drunk to operate, <laughs> right? And then when she says Del Paxton's over there, then his like ire goes a completely different direction. Yeah, she goes, "I lost you. Yeah, I messed up." Which I've personally been there before, you know. Which one were you? Were you Rita Wilson or were you uh, Tom Everett Scott? Both, oh. <laughs> but at the yeah, same time, at the same time. But he goes over to Dale Paxton, and it's the most humanizing scene of the film for Guy, and that he completely just becomes a kid, and he's just entranced in the presence of this legendary jazz musician. Yeah, it kind of reminds you how young he is. That's the thing. Because by now, the movie is trying to play you into just going like, oh my God, this is awesome. Everything that's happening to him and they're so cool and all this stuff. And then suddenly here, if you're, especially if you're older, I guess, you just look at it and you're like, oh, this poor kid. Yeah. He's so out of his depth. Yeah, exactly. And if Judd Aptow was directing it, they would have had sex while his wife watched. Yes. And then his two kids would have been in the scene for no reason. Um, but yeah, so next morning, Ethan Embry's gone. He's out of there. And, you know, it's the big day where the Wonders are going to make their debut on national television. 
So guy, you know, hungover, shows up to the studio. He's got his glasses on. At this point, they're a fucking sensation. They have groupies following him everywhere. So this is a big deal. We go back to Erie, Pennsylvania, and we see Guy's family. And I guess at this point, Giovanni Ribisi's dating their I daughter. Did, that's the only explanation for him to be in that house at that point. And he still has this jaunty cast on. Um, so either this movie, or you know, the events of this movie happened real fast, or he really fucked up his arm. He's still, <laughs> he still messed up from that fall. Well, it did happen pretty fast. You know, I don't know how long it takes a broken arm to heal because the only time that ever happened, I was like in kindergarten. I don't remember that, but uh, he couldn't play. It was two months. They had been together two months by the because that's what they said when they were on television. (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't play the drums anymore. Um, And then, then this is just the cold nature of show business. They just have a guy on standby to play bass. Yeah, they're they're like, like, oh, Ethan Embry's not here. Yeah, fuck it, we got the Wolfman. Wolfman, we'll throw him in there. Um, so they play on TV and it's great. It's that thing you do again. <laughs> yeah, it's like, they've it's played it a million times, so you, you know they've figured out how to do it. Yeah, and this is supposed to be the triumphant, the climax, the triumphant climax of the movie, where this mm-hmm. is like as, as far as they're gonna get, and it's awesome. But if you're watching, you know that it's actually really sad because of what we said earlier, which is this is them peaking. Yeah, and they're not even twenty. And it causes Jimmy to freak out because they show their nameplates on the screen, um, you know, shades as Guy has become to be known because of his glasses that his manager made him wear. Uh, Leo, Wolfman, and then Jimmy, and then they put below his little nameplate, "Careful, girls, he's engaged." Yes, and uh, and he freaks the fuck out because of that's this. In, in, a, in a movie that's just not not what I would call a showcase for good acting. Jimmy, whatever his name is, uh, he has a nice Jonathan Sheshesh. Jonathan Sheshesh. He he has a pretty that's a master class of micro reactions uh, <laughs> when he sees because I guess he's playing and he's looking at the monitors and then he notices that title that they put under his name and you can tell exactly what's going on through his mind. He's like, "What the <laughs> fuck? We are not engaged." Who said that? Yeah. Who told you that? Yeah. It's a shame that then later the movie kind of ruins that that moment of subtle acting by having him actually like act it out yeah so they get backstage afterwards and he starts bitching about it to Faye and then you know everyone comes back into the locker room and now Faye gets her rebuttal so she gets to emasculate him having no one seen like the setup to it yeah Liv Tyler who's been just basically uh, uh, a punching bag for the entire movie as far as you know, she's just there. Mm-hmm. She's uh, like, like pretty much every woman in this movie. She's just there either to cheer for the males or to be displayed as this object of, of beauty that oh belongs to me. And right before their performance on national television, guy is he asks Tom Hanks, he asks Mister Y, hey, where's Faye? I don't want her to miss this. And he's yeah. like, don't worry, I got this taken care of. And so he's basically just gotten her like pimped out. Yeah. So that she's displayed as the wonders as girl. It's it's kind of again Had her it's celebrated. On the red carpet. And, yeah. yeah, it's celebrated, but really it's just that's not her. This is a small girl from a small town in Pennsylvania, and she's just just being manipulated by the system. Yeah, just like the guys. And Jimmy, you know. This was the the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. He's had enough at this point. And then when they get them back in the recording studio, because uh, Mr. White 
wants a Spanish cut of that thing you do. Among other things. <laughs> and he wants them to cover some tracks from the Playtones catalog. Right. Jimmy wants his original songs. He, he wants to write new stuff. Yeah. And Which it, is completely understandable if you're an artist. Exactly. And his artistic morals come into play, and it unfortunately costs him his career because he quits. Yeah. He quits. Uh, and Granted to a catchy tune. Right. He gets in the mic I and I quit. I quit. I, I quit. quit. <laughs> and then he has that final moment of sadness, which is like, Mr. White, I quit. <laughs> when he's done with the song. <laughs> like Jonathan and we, yeah. we, we hardly need you. That's it. That's the end of and him. And that was the, that was the end of him. Right. The movie is done with him by by then. No, him. <laughs> That's it. And Hollywood. He's gone. <laughs> yes. Um, and then we're left with Guy sitting at the piano and Mr. White, Tom Hanks, his soliloquy here is just, you were the smart one. He says. He's the only remaining survivor. Right. He's like. He doesn't even mention Ethan Embry when he's listening to people, right? He just says, he says, Lenny, Steve Zahn, is the fool. Jimmy is the talent. You're the smart one. So you're not talented. You're just the smart one. Exactly. You, knew, you knew how to attach yourself to the talent and make it here. Yeah. So he just kind of dumbfoundedly just hangs around the recording studio. And then after a while, I guess when he gets his wits back about him, he just goes to the drum kit and just kind of... Starts doing a little skadoodle on there, and there's still the recording studio uh, reps are still in there, and they're just, uh, hey, kind of listen to him go at it. And it so happens that Del Paxton's recording uh, a couple doors down. Just like it happens in real life all the time. All the time. It like, could happen to you, man. And he hears it, and he comes in, and, you know, guy starts kind of freaking out, and he's like, well, let's jam together. And he says, I'm recording down with Willie Walker. And he says, oh, can we bring him in to jam too? And then he kind of suns him and says, let's keep this a duet. <laughs> so Guy gets his big moment uh, playing along with Del Paxton. Then we go back to the hotel where he comes back late. And then the doorman just pretty much encourages him to go smash on Faye. Like, she said the... It's not the bar. She said the whatever the coffee shop. Uh, the coffee shop by herself, where I come from. That ain't that ain't nice. <laughs> <laughs> he said something along those lines. Just yeah. as offensive. I don't know. It's the movie. This is where Hanks kind of overreaches, and we we kind of mentioned it while we're watching it. Where this movie, for better or for worse, it's a movie about a rock and roll band. This is not a fucking romantic comedy. No. Nobody cares about the love story between anybody here. Uh, which is kind of a point that you would think the movie is aware of because they have Steve Zahn. The last time we see him is, you know, they play on national television yeah. and then they have the big meltdown in the dressing room where uh, Jimmy breaks up with Faye or Faye breaks up with Jimmy. And uh, and then Steve Zahn goes off to Vegas and then the last thing we see is like, him getting married. Which is the receptionist from Playtone. Yes, who used to be a Playboy bunny, apparently. Yeah. So that's... That's okay. I get it. Ha ha ha. Love is funny. Marriage is a joke. Whatever. Uh, but then for this last like 10 minutes of the movie, it just switches gears. And then we're supposed to give a shit about whether Guy and Faye actually have a future together. Yeah. And then he goes in and they just have like this tense romantic moment at the bar. And then she says, oh, well, I got to get going. And then kisses him on the cheek and hugs him and says, I hope you know none of this would have happened if you hadn't joined the band. And I mean that in a good way. And then he goes, she runs out to wait for her cab. And then, like, 
I know they planted seeds for it, but it's just so stupid. It just happens so quick. It just runs out and basically, when's the last time you were really kissed? Yeah, and, and the movie, well, not just the movie, but in particular, Liv Tyler's character, Faye, and then later on, Tom Ever Scott, they have this weird obsession with, with kisses in a way that I would imagine an 18, 19-year-old, you're past the kissing thing. You yeah. know what I mean? I mean, to be crude... You're going to fuck. So, <laughs> you know, You're in it to win it. Right. And so when they're talking about like, oh, well, yeah, I was because uh, she asks him when they're when they're at the coffee shop. She's like, your girlfriend, was she a good kisser? Who, who asks that? Yeah. That's, that's a sort of like conversation that happens when you're 12, 11, or it doesn't happen at all in the yeah. rest of your life. But here it's just happening between adults, young adults, but they're still adults. And it's just that's just weird. It just seems like. Just leftover lines from the PG cut of the movie. <laughs> and then it leads to them kissing. And, you know, she said that should have happened a long time ago. When I was, when I had a boyfriend and you had a girlfriend. Yeah. We should have cheated. We should have ruined all the success we would have been trapped <laughs> if that would have happened. Uh, but then they go back into the hotel and the movie ends with the, the wise doorman. Smiling at looking us, looking at the camera, he breaks the fourth wall. It's just the ultimate fuck you from Tom Hanks. It's like he knows he got away with it, and he was like, "Wait, it's not over yet." And then he just has the 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 doorman just really smile. He doesn't even have dialogue or anything. He's just no, like, he just looks at the camera and, and he's he like, didn't wink, know. but I wish he would have. <laughs> yeah, then then maybe it would have been a little less uh, condescending. <laughs> but it's just it's that look of like. Gotcha. And then in the credit titles, we find that Faye and Guy had four kids together and had a happy life. Uh, Ethan Embry got a Purple Heart for his injuries like, yeah, from some... Vietnam. Yeah. Steve Zahn owns a casino and is single. And uh, Jonathan Sessions is he had three gold albums. He went back to Playtone. Exactly. He, he just he swallowed his pride, sold out, and just became part of the machine. Which is like one of the ultimate fuck yous of that movie. Is like <laughs> your artistic integrity will get you fucking right. nowhere. The the talent the talent just gets assimilated by the system. Yeah. And then the smart guy but here's the other thing. He decides to stay in California because he says that Dell told him that he had what it you know, he had it in him to to be a drummer, so he's like, "I'm going to stay here and and give it a shot." Yeah, we know that that's not going to happen, and then the end credits confirm it that he just not, he's not going to be successful as a musician. He peaked; he already peaked. Tom Hanks knew it because he told him that he was a smart one. He didn't tell him that he was a talent. So it's no surprise that guy doesn't go any further. Instead, he just he ends up being a father of four. So God, that poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> Stuck and then, there. and then the other two. I mean, just doing that thing he does. Yes, <laughs> four times <laughs> over and over. What's that thing you do, babies? <laughs> Live Tyler. Live Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and then that's it. It's over. The ultimate insult is we've heard that thing you do a million times, and they don't even play it over the end credits or in Spanish, which I would have been like, "All right, I that's awesome because it's referenced as." That would have been perfect if they, yes. the end credits was it in Spanish. Sung by Jimmy. Yes. Because then you get it. It's like an extra Easter egg where you're like, oh, not only did he come back to play, though, he came back and he recorded that thing you do in Spanish. <laughs> what he fought for in the beginning. <laughs> yes. He came Ugh. back 10 years later and he was completely 
ruin. He spent all his that thing you do money. He's like, I'll do whatever you want, man. It's a sad movie. It's an irresponsible movie. It's an earworm. It that Im- too. I it mean, implants it in itself I hate in your it, brain. And yet I'm going to have it in my head for the next week or so. <laughs> Fight it all you will. Yeah, that's that Tom Hanks. He's a he's a wily one. I mean, the, <laughs> there's a reason why he's, he's a, still he's a swindler. He's he's still making movies for a reason. Yeah, he kind of overplayed his hand with his next directorial effort, but that's I guess he redeemed story. himself. Yeah, he made a better movie, but but didn't calculate well. He he couldn't play the audiences the way that he played them here. He had Brian Cranston in both of them though. Yes, Brian Cranston. There's so many awesome cameos that are just wasted on this movie because you know Clint Howard. Yeah, uh, and then I'm telling you, there's that girl in the audience crying. I think that's Justin Bateman, and I mean it would make sense. They were she had the because Tom Hanks guest starred in like a couple episodes of uh, Family Ties, mm-hmm. so there is a connection. I'm I'm gonna go with that. I'm a Justin Bateman truther, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm ready for uh, real talk. Let's move this along. Let's do that thing we do with real talk. Can't believe this. The wonders are in breach of contract. Sorry, I'm really sorry, Mister White. Well, don't worry. No one's going to prison, son. It's a very common tale. Well, maybe for you, but I was in a band and we still have a hit record. Yeah, you do. One hit wonders. It's a very common tale. My first time in a real recording studio. You want to hang around for a while? Okay by me. But you're out of the hotel this afternoon. Can't help that. You know, Guy, Horace was right about you. You are the smart one. Lenny is the fool. Jimmy is the talent. Faye is... Well, Faye is special, isn't she? And you are the smart one. That's what I think, anyway. Real Talk for That Thing You Do. That Thing You Do was released on October 4th, 1996. Just recently crossed the 20-year anniversary of that. Had a budget of $26 million with a box office of a little under $35 million. So didn't absolutely shatter at the box offices. Did have a stellar reception from critics, though. Not 100%. 93%. I do believe there were some that didn't care for it, Julio. That's still pretty high, 93%. So there there weren't that many uh, green tomatoes or green splotches. Uh, but here's here's a few. Starting with Richard Carlis from Time Magazine, who says, A movie that, like many a pop tune, has a cute idea but a simple-minded lyric. Christopher Knoll from FilmCritic.com says, is a pleasant film perfect for a brain-dead matinee. What we call a backhanded compliment. A compulsalt. A compulsalt. James Kendrick from Q Network Film Desk says, passable entertainment, but still trite and superficial. These fuckers, they feel like they're too good for the movie. No shit. And finally, Cynthia... Dude, I'm not making this up. Cynthia Fox 
It says F-U-C-H-S. Okay. From the Philadelphia City Paper says, It's concerned with a very general notion of the corrupting nature of stardom, and it doesn't push any of its ideas far enough to invite its audience to invest in the issues it raises. She was overthinking it. Yeah. It ranks amongst the movies we've done that it's really hard to talk shit about. I did. I was, I mean, I already had it. I, I think I pumped myself for it already because I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember watching it a lot when it came out. And uh, it, it was just everything I was, I, I remember, like, I was like, this is going to be a great time. And it was a great time. So good. And I remember specifically, I remember going to the theater to see this because I would have been um, nine when this movie came out. But I remember going to see it because. You're like, mommy, I want to live in the 60s. I mean, I'm, I'm in from a white family, and Tom <laughs> Hanks did something, so we had to go see what Tom <laughs> Hanks did. Um, but yeah, I remember seeing it then, and I remember just the song sticking with me, and I remember certain scenes from the movie that, and I, I've seen it since then, but it's so good. I, I saw it in theaters, too, when it came out, and uh, it's funny because I'm like, oh, I'm coming back and watching it again next week. It was gone. That thing you do, not a big thing in uh, Peru. It, well, yeah, like I said, it, it didn't like shatter at the box office. Right. Yeah, I believe it. But I as soon as it was out on video, I got it, and then I would just watch it a lot. It, it was I, I bought the soundtrack, so I had it. And, you know, the soundtrack has obviously the full versions of all the songs that they play plus mm -hmm. the songs from the other bands that play uh, the festivals uh it's just a lot of fun i was hands down uh that thing you do fan so the wonders the band uh the music was actually played by fountains of wayne i don't know who that is of stacy's mom fame oh really yeah I, I can actually hear that now. <laughs> <laughs> the that thing you do is written by Adam Schling. Schling I don't know. Well, same thing. Adam is from it, Fountains is it, of Wayne. Is he related to uh, Jimmy? Uh, yeah, to... I guess uh, Schley Singer. Um, but the bassist from Fountains of Wayne wrote that uh, as a part of some kind of contest that the their record label was having. Like a band that could write the song for the movie would get like okay. the fame of it. So they still are making cut off, you know, on their tour, they can do, you know, that thing you do. Oh, that's they... awesome. That alone is reason to go see these guys on tour. I mean, it's, they're still touring. But that being said, um, Steve Zahn, Tom Everett Scott, Ethan Embry, and Jimmy, they spent eight weeks rehearsing together for the song. But in, right. in the movie, they in the end, it was just dubbed over. But they, they could... The four of them could play the song. Together. Right. They could they could pretend that they were playing it. Yeah, when we're watching it and you turn to me and you're like, Do you know who really plays the song? And I'm like, It's not them. It was just <laughs> heartbreaking. But no, I get it. I get it's it. An it's an illusion. Movie magic. You probably knew this, but it, it was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Song. Yeah. And uh and they fucking butchered it at the Oscars. I remember being disappointed because I was watching it with my parents and they hadn't seen the movie and I was rooting for that song. And it finally it comes on, and they just I remember they cut it weird, and it was just there was a lot of noise, there was a lot of people dancing, and I was like, this is so much cooler in the movie yeah. when it's just the four guys playing, and you have some background dancers in the background. It's not the big production number, but uh, they my parents didn't know that I was rooting for that song, and it was like maybe the second or third song that played in the in the show, and then it was over, and I think it was my dad that was like, oh that sucked. <laughs> 
like, oh, and a young Julio ripped his shirt off and threw it at the TV. I was like, he doesn't know anything. Fuck you. Okay, so, yes, let's get to it. The scene where they play that thing you do for the first time as it is, I would put against... It's one of my favorite scenes ever made on film. The talent it takes to write that scene is... And I am Tom Hanks, his biggest mark. I think it may be the greatest thing he's con- contributed to film is that scene where guy starts it too fast because you have to direct you know, the four people in the band to react to it differently. And then right. Liv Tyler and then Giovanni Ribisi. You have to like... There's you, a lot. Yeah. And you have to think of so much when you write that scene. It, there's a perfect buildup to it too. Not just within that scene because you have... You see one act, two acts before they come on stage. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and there's the MC that's like telling horrible jokes. Oh, that's jokes. great too. And the guy in my shorts, shut up! I'll kick your ass. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's that guy who becomes a recurring character. I mean, he shows up. The fan. The fan. He's the fan. I told you while we were watching. That's one of my favorite lines. Hey, was that our fan? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but also you're building up on it because of you've heard him play the song the way it's supposed to be played. And yeah, you're right. The transition that they make. When they're while they're playing it, as they get more comfortable playing it fast, it's mm-hmm. just it's so good. Steve Zahn knows it from the very beginning. Yeah, exactly. He's always like smiling. It's like holy shit, we're doing this. Yeah. Whereas like Jimmy is like resisting it, but he's the pro, so he carries through. And then by the end of it, he he's got it. And then like when it starts, you have that shot of Liv Tyler and she mouths what happened. And then <laughs> by the end of it, she's like, oh my god, this is like right, it. Yeah, right. It's so good, and it's um. Yeah, I mean, there's no, no need in skipping around it. Like we were talking about in the beginning, is true. Uh, Tom Everett Scott and Jimmy, they were supposed to be like big things. I mean, I, I don't, I, I actually, I'm not gonna say I followed Tom, Tom Everett Scott's career, but it, it, I did know. I think that every time that he was on something big, I was like, oh, it's that guy again, and yeah. you know, I, I was like, okay, this is the one where because I he did uh, like some Disney movie a few years ago too. Uh, is that the one where like Billy Crystal and uh, some of the, in the the terrible day, the terrible terrible awful day? Oh, he's in it. Yeah, the, now I have to watch. It. He's the dad. Yeah, because <laughs> I know he's the dad, and uh, oh man, he's now he's the dad now. <laughs> but he's, uh, he is. <laughs> The dad. the dad. Uh no, he's the dad and uh I don't remember what the movie's called, but it has Billy Crystal, Bette Midler, Marissa Tomei, and kids. So, Wild Hogs? No. <laughs> the wrestler. Aww. No, uh it has because uh, it's it's about him and Marissa Tomei. <laughs> I'm just picturing Bette Midler in the Rams gear right now. <laughs> no, that would be Billy Crystal. Okay. Uh no, Bette Midler would be like one of the strippers. Whew. Uh but no, it's it's a movie where he has uh him and Marissa May have kids and they leave the kids with the grandparents who are Billy Crystal and Bed Midler and Hilary ensues, I guess. I don't know. I I consider watching it because of Tom Ever Scott, because I really feel like I don't know. I, I think that he was great in this movie and I think that he is he's he's just he has such charisma and what we're watching, you're like right, why didn't he break through? Why didn't he become like a bigger thing? And my instinct is, uh, and I think I've said this before when we're talking about the original Scream, how I remember everybody when Skeet he, Ulrich, Skeet Ulrich, he was like, "Oh, he's the next Johnny Depp," and then Johnny Depp 
kept being Johnny Depp because Kit Ulrich was not, you know, he didn't have where to go. Tom Hanks kept being Tom Hanks. Exactly. Because, dude, Tom Everett Scott is a young Tom Hanks in this movie. And I made fun of it in, in Contrarian's Corner. But here, it's it's a good thing. He's great. Yeah. Uh, but but Tom Hanks is still around. So Tom Hanks is still playing Tom Hanks roles. And I guess Tom Everett Scott didn't have, like, anywhere to grow into. That's just my own personal theory. But Jimmy. was... He, well, wait, before we move on to Jimmy, oh, okay. I want to leave Tom Everett Scott because he, he has, unlike Jimmy, who I, I've never seen him anything else, I know that Tom Everett Scott was in, a, uh, you know how there's a movie, An American Werewolf in London? American Werewolf in Paris or whatever? Yes, yeah. so he's in that one, uh, which I didn't see, actually. Wasn't he on Dead Man in Campus, too? Or Dead Man on Campus? He might be. I think so. Uh, but then he was in this TV show that lasted one season. It was called The Street. With a dollar sign instead of the S, because it's about Wall Street, <laughs> and he worked in Wall Street. And dude, I mean, he was saying that he was the main characters. Nothing. It didn't get renewed. It's like America, Hollywood. What <laughs> happened? It was this guy's great. Why didn't you just? And I don't know. He might be doing fine. Maybe it was his choice. Maybe he just decided that he was just gonna he was gonna Rick Moranis it early and just get in and get out. Yeah. Maybe he did that thing you do, and I was like, I don't really want to be part of any sort of big industry. I'm just going to be Mr. Artistic Integrity. <laughs> he learned from the, the message of the film. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he is great in this. Um, yeah. Jimmy, on the other hand, I don't know. I mean, he's – do you like Jimmy in this movie? Because I do. I, I I do. I think that his turn into a bad guy could be a little sudden. I, I, I think, think Jonathan – I think there's a couple parts where he's – kind of going for it a bit too much like in terms of when, when he's the back when he turns when yeah. he completely turns when he does his heel turn i think he's like hamming it up a bit too much and that especially uh, i should have broke up with you in pittsburgh or whatever he says and i'm eh. but but you know i don't think that that's entirely his fault because it's like if you if you're given that line i don't know how you have a better delivery of it i mean i guess you could he could have downplayed it no no, no. that scene i think he kind of uh, that's where he kind of lost me but then where he quits the next scene he's excellent in. <laughs> he's back on track yeah exactly so it, just because like yeah and it's so like shitty and like but he does that with such a shitty and grin it's it's great but then his last line which i mentioned in the corner when he after he does his his fuck you saying singing uh resignation then he stops and then he looks really sad and he says mr white i quit yeah <laughs> so it's it hurt him there's layers and it's one of those things the movie paints him to kind of be the dick of the film but at the same time you know watching it where we are now i can appreciate his stance and it the movie kind it doesn't really try to vilify him it tries to make him an asshole for different reasons but it doesn't try to hang him for being an artist right he's an asshole because of what he does to live tyler yeah not because he he actually wanted to, i mean he couldn't he could have been smarter he could have played the game and probably eventually recorded his own songs but yeah. he's impatient i mean i guess if you believe the end credits and why wouldn't you yeah <laughs> he eventually came back and learned to play the game and, and became part of the industry we yeah. can assume that he was happy. And it's one of those things, this movie is perfect in that any time frame, this is accurate. A fucking agent can just swoop in and say, okay, if you want to make some fucking money, this is what's going to happen. We're going to take this band, we're going to do this, do that, and you guys have a good song. Um, Giovanni Ribisi. I feel at this point in time, you know, you could say that anyone could have played that role, but within, <laughs> with the gift of hindsight... 
his shit would not be as funny if it wasn't Giovanni Ribisi. Right, it's extra funny because it's Giovanni Ribisi. Yeah, exactly. Like, when they're watching it at home on TV and he still has his cast on. And he's, like, got his little TV dinner in front of him. And he's, and he's gone from screen. being resentful to being excited yeah. about the band. Exactly. So cool. And it's one of those things you literally can't bitch about. Or, like, you can't change. It would change that role if it was anyone else. But it's fucking Giovanni Ribisi. Like, that's what makes it funny. And he, too, the the one scene he actually gets to act in, what I was talking about earlier, the the original talent show where they do that thing you do, and how he has two cuts of that. And it's the one of him being like, oh, come on, guy, that's too fast. And then when it cuts back to him, when he realizes what's happening, and right. he's like, oh, fuck. And then he gets like, somebody bumps into him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I love that scene, but then, because when you, you told me, like, oh, I love the scene or whatever, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's the best scene in the movie. But then, as we were watching it, I'm like, no, the scene that I've always loved from the first time I watched it uh, is when they hear the song for the first time on the radio. Oh, which so I think good. it's just as good. Yeah, there's less going on, but he just captures the joy of that moment. So it, you can't... I, I was When we got to that part, I'm like, this is when, like, when I was watching the, the Muppets movie, like the, the first Jason Segel one, mm-hmm. right? When you, you're like, I guess the only Jason Segel one. <laughs> but that moment of like, it, it's just like everything is happy. Not yeah. just like on screen. Life's but a happy song. Exactly. That's like life's a happy song. And that song is that thing you do. Yeah. They're, they're all, they all catch the song on the radio one by one. And they, they come together at the appliance store and they're dancing and they're singing and it's, and it's funny. It's not just that, but you know, Steve Zahn is being a clown yeah. and the dad doesn't know what's going on. That whole thing is just, it's, I think that you can, uh, uh, take it for granted, you know, just to capture that thing because it's not a big dramatic moment. No, it, it's just, yeah. Oh, it's just this four people having fun, like five people with Liv Tyler, uh, having a good time but it's not it never feels like like padding it doesn't feel like oh this is just like oh well the scene where they're happy before the interesting stuff happens you're actually enjoying it with them yeah. when you're watching it so it's that stuff is just so good and i think that that actually carries through the entire movie where uh the tone that that tom hanks achieves with this and that lady that last uh quote the negative quote where she's like well you know they don't really delve into the issues it's not that kind of movie you're yeah. missing the point if you're you're upset that they didn't really go into into what really happens in the music industry and how they fuck you up. Uh, that's like me and Contrarian's Corner complaining about the, the the fact that there's no drugs or, or alcohol or <laughs> violence. That's it's missing the point. Yeah. So that scene is great, and I also like uh, their final performance when they're at the on the TV show because I remember always liking it when I watched that when you get to see the director directing the cameras and just going like, okay, now we go over here. Now we yeah. go over here. Now we have the shot of the drummer. Take your time. Take your we're, time. We're in no rush. <laughs> and then he's like, America, meet the wonders. And yeah. then they do the. It's just so well paced. Yeah. And, uh, and it just looks good. It just. Uh, no, I agree with you. I, I, it's, you know, a one and a two type thing of the two favorite scenes in the film. And, you know, with the things we've done and the movies we've covered, to have, like, honestly speaking, to have two scenes of that high quality in one movie speaks to the, right. how good this movie is. And it's just, it's startling that Tom Hanks was able to, like, turn this out. And then Larry Crown, which is one of the worst movies I've seen in the past, I guess it would be past five years. It would have been 
2011, but I mean, everyone I, fucks up every now and again. So I, I haven't seen it. It's uh, it's really bad, but um, not having seen it, and I guess even if I had seen it, I guess I would be willing to give Hanks the benefit of the doubt and just assume that something happened that was beyond his control. That there's that's fair, you know, that he just for whatever reason he just lost control of the story, and then it just... or some studio told him. Hey, you have 60 hours to write a script. And he's, all right, I'll do this. Release date is here. <laughs> we are here. <laughs> Go. So, uh, but yeah, this movie, I think, speaks to his credit as a contributor to film in general, that he's able to turn this out. It, you know, it's not something that changed the wheel or anything like that, but it's just, for what it is, it's almost perfect. The only thing, and we talked about this, the ending. Yes. It's it, not terrible. It should have ended with him playing with Del Paxton. Yes. I I understand the the urge to give it a, not just a happier ending, but a more traditional... Keep in mind, in the mid to late 90s, Liv Tyler always had to go over in the end. You know, we, we <laughs> had to make sure that she was the, the focal point. But Yeah. I mean, and there is, like you mentioned in Contrarian's Corner, I mean, it's not like it comes out of nowhere. You've seen the chemistry throughout the movie obviously it's clear that guy cares for her and that he's a better friend to her than her own boyfriend and all that stuff but really imagine I, how much i didn't mean to cut you off but at the same time like imagine how perfect it would have been if it just ended when he started jamming with dell and it just went to the credits right like they right. didn't tell you anything that happened yeah you, i mean you would have to change a couple things you could because hanks kind of sets it up on his last scene when he saw him you know, Jim is Italian, you're the smart one, and Faye, well, Faye's special. And so then, then he's setting you up. But yeah. I would have just cut that. You know, Faye leaves on a high note after telling Jimmy that he sucks. Yeah. She's done. She's gone away from the movie. And then, yeah, you close with Guy uh, uh, just jamming with Del Paxson. And, and we don't get our amazing Liv Tyler freakout scene where Renee Zellweger's throwing speed pills at her. Well, no, no, you get it because she still does that. That's the last time you see her in the movie. You know what I mean? Like she, she has that scene, then she leaves, and then it's done. It, 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 well, no, and then and then uh, you know the rest of the thing happened, but she never comes back, and Tom Hanks never brings it up. Brings her up. Uh, yeah, it, it, I don't hate it, but I think that I I was so it cheapens it, right? Because the movie is never about them. Yeah, it's never about them, and then for the ending to make it about them is just weird. If you're gonna have that relationship, <laughs> fucking. The doorman. Right, looking yeah. at the camera. What the fuck? That really is kind of weird. And it just, yeah, it cheapens it. it That's really... where the 7% came from that downvoted the movie. Was... <laughs> like, you know what? I was with it until that last <laughs> thing. We were like, fuck you. Why are you looking at the camera with that smile? It's like, you know what you're doing, Tom Hanks. <laughs> you know exactly what you're doing. And you're kind of proud of it. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, if they're going to get together, why not have them get together before? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That way it's not the end of the movie. It doesn't have that much importance. and I don't know. It's not like it ruins the movie for me. No. But, but yeah. It, but yeah, just that weird thing of, oh, we should have done it a long time ago. Like, it's just like, eh. <laughs> now you're just kind of playing on it. Di- but, okay. So we've gone there. Let's break down. The MVP of this movie, the MVP, is Steve Zahn. You know what? I'll, I'll disagree. Really? Tom Ever Scott. This is Tom Ever Scott's movie. But Steve Zahn... I mean, Steve Zahn, like I said when we were watching, it's like every line that comes out of his mouth is golden. Yes. But 
the fact that you watch that and Tom Everett Scott still comes out on top. He doesn't get to be that funny, and yet he still takes the movie. I mean, which is what makes it even more puzzling that and you know the he, shrimp shack shooter. <laughs> yes, he has uh, Tom Everett Scott gets to do more as much or more with less lines, with less zingers. You know, he has a lot of just like quiet moments where he's just like smiling or just being quirky, but not not in the over the top way that Steve Zahn does. You know, by by design. I mean, Steve, yeah. Steve Zahn is supposed to be that over the top, quirky, nonstop Joker. Uh, so I would argue that Tom Ever Scott is is the MVP, and the fact that that he's not in more movies and more like big roles that is. Uh, that I don't think that's his fault unless he turns out to be like a terrible person in real life that just like nobody wants to work with. I think that that's Hollywood's loss not to have him in more movies doing stuff. Yeah. Uh, but all that said, I mean, Steve Zahn is fantastic in this movie. He's great. He just, uh, he, he's just Steve Zahn. I mean, it, yeah. it's just, it's the unfiltered Steve Zahn, I guess, minus the profanities. Uh, he's, he's just funny in a way that I would expect Steve Zahn to be funny. Uh, I don't think. I mean, I remember when I when I watched it the first few times. I didn't know who Charlize Theron was, and I just remember thinking that she was too old for a guy. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't think that way anymore. But this was before Reindeer Games. Never watched Reindeer Games. So. Well, that's a very unfortunate <laughs> thing on your part. Sure. But. I don't know. Well, she calls him a kid at some point. We should do that also for our Christmas episode. For Christmas, Ranger yeah. Games. Yeah. I guess there's no there's no escaping it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't think that I can spot like an actual weak link. And there's like so many strong performances. I didn't know who Ethan Embry was when I watched this, obviously, the first time. That was like my first Ethan Embry movie. And ever since then, every time I saw him, I'm like, oh, it's the, the bass player from that thing you do. And now you're like, oh, it's Mark from Empire Records. <laughs> no, I'm just going like, oh, it's Ethan Embry. <laughs> I wonder what crazy thing he's going to do this time. The incomparable. It's an interesting film. Um, I wish like I was able to find out more about it, but like, you know in what little research I do for these films, I wasn't really able to find out what Tom Hanks's motivation was for writing it or anything like that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty perfect of the time yeah. and God damn that song sticks in your head. Yes. Uh, it's, uh, and they really don't change it that much. That's the thing. It, it, and it still works. Exactly. Like my lady friend, when we were watching it, she said, you know, they play that song like 30 times during the movie and every time, you're still just like, yeah. Yeah, you're just happy to hear it. It's yeah. like, you're like somebody at their, at their show. You're like, hey, play that thing you do. <laughs> now, with that being said, you know, you and I would chop off the last five minutes of the, the film or whatever, but um, the director's cut is like 40 minutes longer. Which is insane. I mean, I'm a, I would be afraid, because I like it so much, I would be afraid of watching a longer cut that... That just sucks. That that exactly. that drags. Yeah, it, it would be funny if the forty minutes are just them playing longer shows. <laughs> you know, everything is exactly the same except that they play the whole song and then they play another song after. <laughs> uh, or you see them play that thing you do in every show plus a new song. Uh, but yeah, for the story they want to tell, the length they have is just about perfect. Yes. Yeah. How, how long does it end up being? Because I don't remember. I mean, I wasn't checking. Uh, it's about an hour forty-five. Yeah, that's. Pretty breezy. So for it to be two and a half hours, it would be... Yeah, I mean, what are you doing? Are you just like giving Kim Pollock more scenes? (laughs) (laughs) He comes back. Uh, 
or maybe you're developing the the fey guy relationship more uh, well there's the whole 20 minute opening sequence where tom everett scott robs the bank and then escapes in the school bus <laughs> that they cut from it but 93 percent, as far as you know what we talk about here deserved it's for it's about perfect for what it wants to be. Yeah, uh, when I was flipping through the quotes, uh, just picking the the funnier ones or the best ones, uh, there's a lot of just uh, backhanded compliments and uh, and then some because you know most of them are positive reviews, but the quotes were kind of like, you know, it's not the best movie of the year, but it'll make you smile, or like you know, it's pretty it's pretty superficial, but it's fun to watch and that kind of stuff and. It seems like the the worst thing that most people can say about the movie is that what we're joking about in Contrarian's Corner, which is like it doesn't get into the issues of the sixties. Yeah, but that's not its intent. So, no. I, I'm. Perf- I mean, yeah. And yeah, while it doesn't I'm get into like it. the racial tension and shit like that, it still delves into the trappings of success. In that, like, if you want to succeed, you have to concede. Like, right? Yeah, there are compromises, and you're gonna lose some things, and uh, and. It, it's also, I remember it bothering me the first time I saw it, but not in a bad way. Just kind of, I was just bummed at how quickly their band falls apart. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, yeah, that happens. You yeah. know, they're, they're just like, they're They've only perfect. been together for two months. Right. They're perfect for two months and then it falls apart. And having, being older now, I'm like, yeah, I've been through that stuff. I didn't have a band, but I've been through relationships or situations where like, this is all clicking and then it stops clicking and then it goes away and you're like, wow, what happened? Yeah. After a few times, you're like, oh, that's life. That's just how it happens. <laughs> but unfortunately, in real life, you don't get a shot of Ethan Embry riding a roller coaster with Mickey Mouse. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's just you drinking. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, that's another favorite moment. Just not sequences, but moment is when they're about to play on live TV and Steve Zahn turns to uh, to Guy Tom Ever Scott, and he's like, man, how did we get here? And I'm like, yes, that's... <laughs> and of course, Tom Ever Scott goes... Uh, I'm I Spartacus. The... I, I, brought I brought you, you here. <laughs> and Steve Zahn doesn't get it. He's like, what the fuck? <laughs> well, that and uh, when they play their first state fair, and then Steve Zahn just, well, sketch. Take it away. And just kind of throws it over to him. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Steve Zahn's the only one who found consistent work after this, but... He's a funny man. I think the eventually we will do going. Saving Silverman because it's only it's like at seventeen percent. Um, I've I've told you before, and I, I know we'll get to it eventually. But uh, Reality Bites. I mean, he's not he's one of the main characters, but he's probably the one with the less the, the least screen ben time. Ben Stiller. Yeah. yeah, Ben Stiller, Bernard Ryder, Ethan Hawke, and there's also one of those movies that you watch it very differently when you're an adult as as opposed to when you're a teenager. When you're watching it and you're a teenager, you're like. Man, Ethan Hawke is like a, like the cool guy, and then when you're an adult, like you just hate Ethan Hawke. You're like that pretentious fucker. <laughs> uh, it's like uh, how I started Parks and Rec in season two, uh, and I thought like Mark Brandanowitz was the coolest motherfucker in the world, <laughs> and then I went back and watched the first season. I was like, fuck that guy. <laughs> um, yeah, we might have to do. What would be a Steve Zahn movie that was really high rated besides this? What was that one he did with Christian Bale? Rescue Dawn? Yes, I haven't seen it. But so then, we, and then he did one with Matthew McConaughey, uh, Sahara. I haven't seen it, but also... Well, I'm, I don't know if that's high rated. Come on, Matthew McConaughey, Steve Zahn, possibly Salma Hayek? <laughs> the Mahay up until like 
two years ago. His movies were all in the doldrums. Well, it might be a low-rated one. And but that's the, the thing. If we do Saving Silverman... Oh, because it's low-rated. And gotcha. the, we need to have like a trade-off where we can do right, so. Right, right. But we'll get to that. Um, but yeah, so this episode, uh, even it'll probably come out at the end of the month of October. Um, uh, no, I was I was kind of doing the math. Well, probably the way it's going to work is uh, Valley of the Dolls will post sometime after the middle of the month, mm-hmm. which means that if we go like every two weeks, this one posts early November. So... Regardless, because we didn't really acknowledge that in Valley of the Dolls, but this is kind of like our two-year anniversary. Yeah, yeah, that, that was. Yeah, I think that our like anniversary episode will come in between Valley of the Dolls and uh, this one. Okay, cool. So it's it's all part of a big celebration, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, great time, great movie. Uh, gonna track it down on Blu-ray because that was one of the things that the, one of the few things I found interesting in the trivia section was. Uh, the movie, like originally, they elected to go with Divix instead of DVD because they thought Divix was the the wave of the future. Bad call. So it was a movie that really didn't come out and have a release until uh, a long time after. And then the Blu-ray was the first to contain the director's cut and the actual film. Which well, I'm glad there is a Blu-ray because you know sometimes we're like, oh, we love this movie, and it's like, well. Start writing your your representative <laughs> for yeah. Blu-ray release. I, I'm still every year. I write my congressman that Batman: Mask of the Phantasm <laughs> should be released on Blu-ray. He just reads your email, shakes your shakes his head. <laughs> oh, Alex Mattis takes it and puts it in the trash can. <laughs> but uh, any plugs this week, Julio? If you ever, and you actually, I was thinking that we need to for our for our anniversary episode, our bonus anniversary episode. We'll probably like the picture will be a picture of two of us. Not one taken right now because I look like shit. Uh, I haven't slept much, but but at some point before we post it, we'll take a picture of the two of us. And uh, and the way that you know who's who is, well, one, Alex looks American, and uh, and two, uh, my hair looks great. <laughs> the reason my hair looks great is because I have a friend that takes care of my hair. Uh, her name is Zoe, and I told her I would totally uh, pimp her talents in this episode. Uh, so if you live in Austin and you need a haircut or something more complicated. Or if you're than, visiting. Yeah, if you're visiting, you might be like, who, I wonder who cuts Julio's hair, <laughs> that guy from the Contrarians. Well, then uh, hairstylist at South Congress, and I guess the way that you – the easiest way to contact her and make an appointment is uh, – and I'll put this on the webpage. But you just email info at calorstudios.com. So Calor is like K-A-L-O-U-R-S. Studios. <laughs> so Kalur. Great work. And of course she does stuff that's more complicated than just cutting my hair. She colors and she does sparkles and I don't know what else. Like all the stuff that the cool <laughs> kids do to their hair. I'm too old for that, but uh other people do. And uh she's doing this thing right now where like if you if you refer someone, then she puts your name on a, some sort of raffle and you can win a prize. And it's like the point is if you go there because you heard this, you should give my name as the person that sent you there so I can get put <laughs> in that raffle. And maybe win something. But also, she's she's a lot of fun. So she'll uh, tell you stories while she's doing her hair. That is my plug. And that's the only plug of the episode because Alex is lazy. Uh, I'll plug not voting for Donald Trump. Dude. Well, I mean, we are in real talk. So <laughs> let me tell you that uh, I was supposed to... I got off work at 6. And we're supposed to record here at 10. So yeah. I'm like, I have time for like a little nap. Because I worked all day yesterday, open to close. And then I opened today. So I was like fucking exhausted. And I'm like, I'll go home, 
take a nap, take a shower, go to Madison's to record. And instead, I found out that the the, the debate started at 8 instead of 8.30. And I made the mistake of, because at first I was like, I'm just going to record it. I'll watch it later. And never watch a debate in my life because I can just read the highlights on Twitter. And it's a lot more fun. You don't, it's like you get all the good stuff without getting angry. Yeah. Uh, but this time, I just, I don't know what happened. It was like watching a train wreck. Only like, it's not even a surprising train wreck because it was scheduled. And I like made myself like sit there <laughs> ready to watch it. And uh, so I, then I was like, okay, I just want to see the beginning. I want to see if they shake hands. You know, they didn't. And, uh, and then I was just stuck. Dude, I watched the whole debate. And it was just not a pleasant experience. There's, I mean, I don't want to get too political here. Uh, I mean, I did plug democracy in our last episode, <laughs> but I just, I don't know. It's just the fact that we've gotten to this point. It's pretty scary. It, it's disheartening. You know, there is, because the debate, the whole idea behind a debate is just that, okay, especially this type of debate where, they were supposed to answer questions from the undecided voters. So you're like, all right, so we're done with the name calling and this is just going to be a policy. But instead, like through politicians, it's like, oh, I'll take this answer and I'll take this question. I'll start to answer it, but then quickly pivot into either reciting a soundbite that has very little to do with, with the question itself, or I'll just start trashing my opponent. And it's just like, come on. And, I'll give this – I mean, if you haven't figured it by now, I am not voting for Donald Trump. <laughs> but, I mean, I'll give Hillary this. She was trying to speak – to talk about policy, uh, and Trump was just like a fucking mess. And it was just – but but there were people cheering for him in the audience, which was just kind of sickening. <laughs> yeah. Scannered. I mean – can you can you hear that? Can you hear like our, our audience just like running away because we just offended <laughs> – the 50 people yeah, that we're going to vote for. Because I'm, I'm sure that our audience is a conservative base. Some of them have to be because I've seen the the like the people that don't realize that the first half of the show is not meant to be taken <laughs> seriously. Those are the guys that are M voting for Much Trump. like Donald Trump in real life. <laughs> yes. Because there was... It's the, fucking the entire, junk food television, man. Right. It, it, it is because the entire time I'm, I'm still watching because I'm like... What else is going to happen? <laughs> it's one of those things. It's the past since I've been an adult. So 11 years. Um, each election, I've said to myself, that's why I haven't voted. Like, Because my life will not change. If Donald Trump is president, my life will be far more scary <laughs> than it is currently. So unfortunately, I have to vote for someone that I don't really believe in. But <laughs> the alternative is... its Yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. yeah. It's I, like fucking Sierra Mist or Diet Sprite. <laughs> like, I'm, uh, I have to go with this over here. The the thing that made the whole debate... I mean, I, I don't even want to go and say enjoyable, but that made it easier to endure was that the entire time I had Twitter open. And, and that's how you know where, you know, at least most of the people you follow were they lean because, you know, you'd be like, are they saying, fuck yeah, Trump? Or are they saying like, oh yeah, that's awesome, Hillary. Luckily, most of my feed was just comments about either how horrible Trump was. Like, I can't believe I can't believe that he said this, or like, you know, trying to rescue nuggets of sort of common sense that were coming from from his opponent. So it was just without Twitter, because that was like watching it with a lot of people. 
yeah. there, there are people that kind of agreed with me. Whereas, like, if I'd been watching by myself, I wouldn't have lasted. I mean, it's just like I would have succumbed to despair and and I would have gotten some sleep before coming here. <laughs> or maybe not. I would have been unable to sleep because I would just I would just been like having cold sweats. Clutching your pillow. Yeah. Oh God, we're gonna die. Yeah, uh, but either way, I mean, I don't know. It's like I said it last time. Uh, by now, by the time that this goes up, it's too late to register. But it's not, I mean, it's still, this should come up before the election. So if you are registered, vote. Please. Because it's like, why the fuck not? <laughs> I said it on the last episode. <laughs> and vote for a party. <laughs> because in the immortal words of The Simpsons, I believe I'll vote for a third party. Go ahead. Throw your vote away. Yeah, I feel, I don't feel bad. I understand. They're like, Jimmy, bring it back to that thing you do. People that vote for a third party right now, they're like, Jimmy. They're refusing to acknowledge what's right. They're sticking to their principles, and it's like I commend you for that. But you're kind of being an asshole to the band. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it would be nice. It would be great if we could all walk up to the poll and go, "I quit, I quit, I quit." (laughs) Right, but you can't. So instead, how about you? You just record this cover. You record that thing you do in Spanish, and we stick around to make like a second record, a third record. Eventually, By the end of it, you're Spartacus. Yeah, you're Spartacus. Maybe we won't legalize weed over the next four or eight years, but we'll still be a country that, that's kind of respected around the world. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah, so I don't know. Don't be a Jimmy. Be a, be the smart guy. Be the guy that ends up jamming with uh, Del Paxton. With Del Paxton. And ending on the note of America, I do have something to plug. Dan Henderson had the last fight of his career last night. 46-year-old Dan Henderson fought for the UFC middleweight title. Almost won it. And in a moment, I didn't really understand while I was watching it live. So he's a very decorated American wrestler. And then he's an MMA fighter. Like, if he did a top 10 MMA fighters of all time, he'd be on there. Is he better than Kevin James? Uh, Is he well, better regarded than Kevin James? Well, that's a bit of a gray area. <laughs> okay. No, he was a strike force champion, pride champion, pride two weight class champion, and uh, was the third shot at the UFC title. So when the rounds come to a close, they do this thing where they the judges have the or not judges, but one of the officials have these things they clack to like make a big sound to know that the round's coming to an end. So it was the last round of the last fight of his career, and when that clack went off. He just went for like a cartwheel kick. Like it didn't land. He basically just did a standing front flip in the middle of the cage. And I didn't understand it when I was watching. I was like, what the fuck are you doing, old man? And then I realized that when it was over, it was because he started like he started laughing to himself when he got up. And it was like, I'm having fun with the last like, I'm never going to be here again. So fuck it. I'm going to do something fun. So. True American athlete, like one of the most decorated wrestlers the country's ever produced, and a hell of a fighter. And to do something like that in the last stage of his career, is, it took me a minute to appreciate it. But my plug is for Dan Henderson. I don't know if he's on Twitter, and if he is, I don't even know if it's him that runs it, but kudos. I look up something to link to. Okay. <laughs> I'd be like, Alex's plug is... Oh, no, there's a bunch of vines and shit of him doing that, because okay, cool. it was it was very baffling, but... Yeah, uh, that was that thing you do. It was a lot of fun, and I, much like myself, I assume it was equally as enjoyable to revisit. Oh yeah, absolutely, dude. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just so happy that we watched it. It was, I think, it was also the perfect movie to watch 
after the debate, not just because the debate was such an unpleasant experience, but also because I was just, like I just said, I've been working nonstop and then I didn't really get sleep. So it was just good, you know. To it have was just, just joy. It just joy. It just re-energized me. If we had watched. Steve's on. Yeah. Can you imagine like if, we had, if I was coming to watch like fucking Christmas with the Cranks, I'll be, <laughs> we wouldn't have made it. Every episode, it's our thing. We have to find a point <laughs> to make fun of that yes. movie. All right. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. What's coming up next? Coming up next uh, is uh, our super special. We're kicking off our third year with uh, the special crossover with Draft Zero, sort of. Uh, we're doing A Good Day to Die Hard with Chaz Fisher as our guest. And then we're doing our uh, showbiz arc, which sort of valued it all, and that thing you do having a prelude to... So we're doing that thing you do was good. Good day to the heart is bad. So we start with a good movie, which would be The Player mm-hmm. by Robert Altman. And then we follow up with Entourage, the movie. And then we move over to theater and we do Bullets Over Broadway, Woody Allen movie. And then we do A Chorus Line with Michael Douglas. That's your watching list. Start watching. <laughs> Uh, we'll cover those over the next couple months or so. Uh, and we'll love what you hate and we'll, hate what you we'll love. Hate what you love. That's 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 the compromise. That's our that's our platform. Yeah. That's what we're running on. We uh, vote for us, and we will keep uh, <laughs> hating what you love and loving what you hate. <laughs> All right. Well, that will do it for this episode of the Contrarians. I always appreciate your listen. I'll take care. And God damn it, Chaz, I'm only doing this for you. <laughs> Be happy, can't you see? If you don't need that me be the one to hold you and keep you here with me. Cause it hurts me so just to see you go around with someone new. And if I know you, you're doing that thing every day, just doing that thing. I can't take you doing that. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians. On your way out, be sure to swing over to youtube.com backslash ovniofilms. That's O-V-N-I-O films. And check out The New Adventures of Baby Jesus, a web series created and written by The Contrarians' very own Julio Oliveira.
Don't you want to get your cotton-picking mitts off of that?